Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. We focus a lot on new healthcare technology on Raise the Line, with most of the focus being on offerings in the booming digital health space. But that's not the only source of new products doctors have to keep up with. There's also a steady stream of new devices coming out that providers need to learn about and integrate into their practice. The need for doctors to exchange information and tips on new devices and procedures is what prompted interventional radiologist Dr. Aaron Fritz to launch a learning platform called Backtable.com in 2016, which has since expanded to include articles and podcasts and now serves ENTs, vascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists, urologists, and other specialties. Dr. Fritz now joins us to tell us all about it. Thanks for joining us today and spending some time with us. Thanks, Rishi. I appreciate it. Love what you guys are doing at Osmosis, and congrats on the recent partnership with Elsevier. Thank you so much. I want to start by just pointing out that, of course, Backtable is in large part due to, due to your effort, but you also have some partners as well, and, and maybe that would help kind of segue into the, the backstory on Backtable and, and how it came into being. Yeah, for sure. The key partner being my lovely wife, who has been supportive this whole time, but also runs our ENT section. But just to take a step back, I'm an interventional radiologist. And so we use a lot of disposable devices. And so when I came out of training, I joined a big group here in Dallas where I was traveling. I was at a different hospital every week and every different hospital had different devices on the shelf. And even though I was familiar with a lot of the devices because of fellowship and training, there was a lot of new stuff out there that I never even used before. And so I found myself on the phone all the time calling colleagues from training, calling prior attendings, even partners in the group. Hey, how do I use this? Or like, is there, are there any tricks or tips that you have for this so that I can perform a procedure safely? Right. And I thought that there would, that should be a resource for docs, because what I found was there's a lot of guys out there like me, and there's a lot of new devices coming out all the time. And it'd be a great way to help people stay up to date with the new devices out there. And so we started that just for our specialty for IR. And it was actually initially an app. And this app was a way for docs to come on and kind of write, it was like Amazon reviews, right? You'd write a review about a device, what you liked about it, any tricks to it, give it a star rating. And we had pretty good engagement, but it kind of plateaued after a few months after I got all my friends to write reviews. And then one of my other co-founders, Anish Parikh, who is not a physician, but he's kind of our business side. He was like, Aaron, we need to do some content marketing, like some blog writing or maybe a podcast. And I didn't like the idea of it because I didn't like the idea of me with a radio voice or trying to do this as most docs feel probably. And I, I'm not a big writer. So I said, ah, I don't know about it. And then he pitched the idea of making it more informal, kind of like click and clack on car talk. And when he said that, I said, okay, well, that, there's something there. That would be fun. And as my other co-founder, Chris Beck said, you know, it could be more like edutainment and less lecture style. And so that's really the origin of Backtable. And the podcast is what we became known for. The, the app actually died out because it was so expensive to maintain. We actually had more fun doing the podcast that that's how 
it sort of transformed into, okay, let's just be a, an educational resource via podcasting. And just so I understand the pain point, when you would go in to do a procedure, was it that you didn't have the technical know-how, like literally like how to do something with a new device? Or was it like not knowing when to use a new device, like kind of the diagnostic side of it? It was more like the, the differences, like so like different biopsy needles, for example, have different ways that they function. Some come with coaxial needles, some don't. They have different levels of sharpness. They engage the sample in different ways, right? And so if you run into an issue with one biopsy needle versus another, I want to get that information out to my colleagues, right? So that they don't waste time on that one that gave me issues. They go straight to the better one. That makes a lot of sense. So and then, and then thinking about your podcast, if you're doing the click and clack style, right, and, and someone's listening, how translatable is that information? Like, like, so for example, if I'm in Mississippi and I've got, you know, a procedure, I've got a patient in front of me, I'm just trying to think through, like, how relatable is your experience in, let's say, California or wherever you may be to my experience in Mississippi? Like, how, how does that translate when the patients are different, the situation is different, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, just to stick with the biopsy kind of example, you know, the first episode was me and Chris, I knew Chris liked one kind of bone biopsy needle and I liked another. And so we just got on and went toe to toe as to like, what were the pros and cons of each of our needles? His was mine is cost effective because it's cheaper and it gets the job done. Right. And mine was like, no, actually yours is a piece of crap. Mine's more expensive, but it's sharper and it gets a better sample. And here's, here's my experience. So it was that kind of like going back and forth. Does that answer your question? Oh, totally. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And so it feels very viscerally authentic and yeah. real, Yeah. you know, in that sense. Yeah, I totally get that. And which was my kind of my next question is like, how do people kind of get the trust that like, hey, is he just getting sponsored by uh, the biopsy needle guy? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, early days, we were not sponsored by anybody. And so we were just that was what we were going for was authenticity. We still go for authenticity. And even to this day with our sponsors, we let them know, hey, we're not here to make infomercials for y'all. We may have a, a KOL or key opinion leader on that um, is familiar with their device so that they can present the expertise in the know-how about the device. But the goal is not to talk about their device the whole show. It's to talk about how this device fits into their day-to-day practice. And again, why do they endorse it? Why did they use it? And that's the whole goal uh, back to it. Cause I do feel like we do need industry at the table. That's how we innovate. We can't, you know, this whole like kind of murky, sort of relationship with industry, it's troublesome because when you're in training, you get taught to stay away from those guys. They're bad news, but that's not true. Like that's how innovation happens is when docs and industry team up and they discover pain points and they, they find solutions for those pain points. And so I feel like the podcast is a good way to talk through this stuff and have industry at the table in a responsible way. So, I mean, I guess that brings up another question is that like when you say in training, there's kind of this ethos of like, you know, maybe separation of church and state or, you know, however you want to describe it. Right. But your point is well taken. Like how are you supposed to improve if you can't have key stakeholders around the table? So do you think that maybe the training setting ought to change a little bit or change their, their stance on industry? I do. And I, I think it is changing over time. I mean, I see a lot more people open to it as, as we we're in this sort of innovation age. Right. And so I, I do, see more people in the academic setting being more open to kind of working with industry, letting those sales guys in the door, just from conversations we've had with people. But when I was in fellowship, there was only, I only met one sales rep the whole year. 
he was the only guy that was allowed in the door and it was frowned upon to engage with those guys. And I think that, you know, yeah, that some of them are very sticky and they're not helpful, but a lot of them really are, and they're really knowledgeable and you actually learn from them. And when I got out in practice, I was by myself in a lot of these hospitals and I had to learn from the sales guy because he was the primary resource. And, and that's also why I wanted to supplement that with information from my colleagues, crowdsourcing information around devices so that my sole source of information wasn't just from the sales team. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. I mean, it sounds like such an evolution from where things had started, where you're calling up, it sounds like a handful of friends and, and maybe relatives and, and, and where things are now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm curious, like, how has the podcast itself evolved? Like, what, what things are you doing today that maybe on day one you weren't doing or, or like what has shifted and changed over time? Yeah, that's fun to think back, right? Because we've kept the original audio on the first episode the same. So it's like, like I cringe when I listen to it because as you guys know, having a podcast, audio is important. And, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there and you got to evolve as a podcast if you want to maintain listenership and grow listenership. And so originally we were calling in on our little earbuds and, you know, some of us who were calling on our phones and the audio is horrible. And then we realized, okay, I, if I can't listen to this editing it, then my, how do I expect other people to listen to this? So then what I started doing was I got a microphone, I got all my hosts, you know, we only had like three, two other hosts at that time. I bought microphones for them that really improved our host audio. And then once we started getting sponsorship, I said, Hey, let's reinvest this money into our audio quality. And I started finding these little USB microphones for like 35, 40 bucks on Amazon and prime, you know, sending them via prime to them. And then they had a better guest experience as well, because they got a microphone, which we just give it to them and they get to keep it. We don't make them send it back or anything like that. And so that was like a major milestone for us in terms of improving our audio quality. The second big one was hiring an audio engineer because before I was doing it all in GarageBand and stuff like that. And then Descript came along, which is an amazing software and an audio engineer who actually knows what they're doing was another big milestone for us. What sort of feedback have you gotten from listeners and, and what advice or information are they giving you that has changed kind of your decisions about programming, who to have on, things like that? Yeah, I think the first thing that's great is that we actually get feedback from our listenership. I recently went to Podcast Movement and there's a lot of talk about how to get feedback from your audience. Like, how do you even know they're interested or listening? And that's challenging, right? Especially with, from physicians, physicians are busy. So before I was reaching out to guests we had on the show or, you know, people I knew who are like super fans listening and trying to get feedback from them. But what's great now is like, it just comes, it comes via email, it comes via website, it comes via Twitter. It's like, Hey guys, I really like this episode that you did on building this service line. Have you ever thought about doing one on building a kyphoplasty service line and in a similar manner? And so it's like the feedback comes along with a suggestion on further content. And it's like, it just becomes a flywheel of content where we don't even have to brainstorm anymore. It's just our audience is telling us what they want to hear. Now, this is uh, something that I'm, I'm particularly curious about because the more I talk to you, the more I realize this is what sounds like a, a very much a full-time gig, right? And, and yet you're also claiming to be a doctor. So like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you balance it? And it seems to me that like a big part of why you're so successful is that you, you're an authentic kind of physician. You've gone through it. You do it day to day. This is part of your experience, your lived experience. 
So balancing the two seems like an enormous juggling act. And, and I'd just like to understand like your, your work week. What does that even look like? Yeah, it, it has been. And honestly, I mean, we're, I know we were going to talk about COVID. We had that lined up. But I mean, COVID, the silver lining was I was, you know, burnout's buzzword right now, but I was burnt out right before COVID. I was a solo interventional radiologist in an OBL, an outpatient-based lab by myself. And then I also had back table. And then I was also doing diagnostic radiology on the side, teleradiology. And it just was just too much. And then COVID hit, it took one of those things away because the OBL shut down. So it freed up some time for me where I was really just doing teleradiology from home for several months. It gave me the time to focus on back table. And we just saw tremendous growth during that period because conferences were shut down, right? People were looking for information and, you know, all of a sudden our listenership starts driving up because people were like, oh, wow, there's this podcast out there that talks about this stuff. And I don't necessarily need to go to a conference because I can hear these guys, you know, it's the same kind of conversations we have at the hotel bar at the end of the day uh, at a conference. And so, and a lot of docs were also sitting around with nothing to do. So they made for great guests. They, they had some time on their hands. So that was the silver lining of COVID is it forced me to take a step back. And then I kind of realized, okay, I'm not going to go back to full-time medicine. I love Backtable. I love what we're doing. Within those first months of COVID, we realized, okay, we have an opportunity to start new shows. My wife, who's an ENT, wanted to start an ENT show. So we started that. And then shortly after that, we started urology. And then I was like, well, I have to do Backtable full-time because all the other founders have other full-time jobs. And I was the only one who was like willing to, to go part-time. And, and I thank them for that, for giving me that opportunity because I love it. And it's been a great adventure. So what I do now is I do locums for my old group and I cover them once or twice a month in the hospital. And that way I kind of stay one foot in and kind of keep my skills set up, but also it helps me come up with ideas for the show. How do you choose new specialties to go into? I mean, I, I can understand ENT. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an obvious one. Uh, what about urology and, and other ones? Like, how did you choose that versus something else? So urology was great because there's a lot of overlap between IR and urology. We do a lot of similar, we collaborate on a lot of cases that have to do with the urinary tract system. And so I had a, actually, he's pretty much a co-founder, Jose Silva, he was with us early on when we first started Backtable because he actually created the same thing that we created for IR devices. We actually created for urology. So we actually had docs writing reviews for urologic devices. And then the app kind of fell off. And then I reconnected with Jose and I said, Hey man, we're doing really well with the podcast. Would you like to be a host for a urology podcast? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And then there's another good friend of mine who was a urologist here at UT Southwestern really liked what we were doing and wanted to participate and we kind of got him hooked like, cause everybody just, once they get that podcast, that microphone in front of them, they really enjoy it. And so yeah, Aditya Bagrodia and, and Jose Silva are our urology hosts. And one thing that we realized was, you know, the urologic topics that we covered on the IR side were really popular and not just with IRs, but with urology. And so we were like, this makes sense, right? There was enough overlap. So it, they're almost like spinoffs from the flagship show. And the same thing with the innovation show that we have, it was a spinoff because Brian Hartley, we had a whole innovation series for a whole year where once a month he brought on a physician founder and those were really popular episodes. And so we're like, well, let's just create a med tech innovation show around it where that's all we do. We just bring on physician founders. Are there new spinoffs in the works, like sort of new ones that you're ideating around? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the next one I really want to do is spine because we've had several interventional spine guys come on as well as orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, all performing similar procedures on the spine. So this one won't be a specialty specific, but it'll be more kind of body part specific. But what I like about that is it's kind of like our vascular show. It's multidisciplinary. So you can have all different docs coming on and collaborating and talking about how they problem solve. And so that's kind of like the foundation of Backtable, which is collaborative and multidisciplinary. That's awesome. And, and it feels like you guys do it in a way that feels very real. And, you know, versus <laughs> a lot of times I think there's this kind of emphasis on interprofessional uh, care, interprofessional communication, et cetera, but it's not done in a very authentic or frankly engaging way. Uh, but this sounds, yeah. this sounds like it is. We try, we try. I mean, it's, it's almost like matchmaking because it's always great when the host and the guests know each other already because there's already a, a rapport there, but sometimes the guest is stiff, you know, and it takes, we always joke as like, you'll have somebody come on and they'll be super stiff for like the first 20 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes, they finally loosen up and like, that's the best content. And you're like, ah, oh, gosh, how do we get them to loosen up early on? But you know, it's the nature of the game and pre-calls are hard because everybody's busy, you know? Maybe, um, maybe along with the mic, you send a bottle of cognac or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just, Take this I, yeah. 20 minutes before you start. Um, <laughs> but actually, it's, it's funny because that brings up the point of communication skills. You know, a lot of times people think, well, if you're a great uh, practitioner, good at doing the thing you do, you'll also be able to teach it well. And, and, and those two right. are not always related. I'm just curious, like, where, where did you pick up your communication skills? You're obviously very good at what you do. Where did you, did, did you read books? Did you have mentors? Like, how did you get to where you are? It's funny you say that, man, because, of course, my, my mom and my wife say that I'm a horrible communicator. It's not true, Aaron. It's not <laughs> true. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, in med school, like, I used to, it's changed how I learn, right? And so the podcasting thing, the communication skills have come just with doing it with reps, just doing it over and over again, having lots of conversations with people. I know you and Shiv are very prolific networkers and have a lot of conversations with people. I mean, it just comes with time. Like, I mean, I had like a kind of awkward conversation with somebody yesterday and I went and I kind of reflected on it and I said, okay, why was it awkward? Is there something that I could have done to make it less awkward or was it just that person? Was there something that I didn't communicate clearly? It's just, you got to reflect and improve with every conversation. And we try to do that with our podcast as well. And so I definitely think the podcasting, the art of conversation, how you kind of form that skill set, it just helps you in real life as well. You know what I mean? What's been your experience with that, with the podcasting? Yeah, like, like you said, I think um, the, the breadth of folks that, you know, I get to talk to uh, because of this experience, it's a lot of fun. One thing you said earlier, you said, if I'm not enjoying listening, you were talking about the technical aspect of it, but if you're not enjoying yeah. listening to an audio, how can you expect your learners to listen or enjoy it? If I'm not having fun talking to a guest, how can I expect, you know, listeners to have fun? And yeah. to me, that's kind of the name of the game. Like at any point, someone can easily, easily just switch, click away, et cetera. So if yeah. I'm not having fun talking to someone, then they're not having fun listening. And so I'm always thinking, how can I make this experience more fun for me? It's kind of a selfish way of thinking about it, but it makes it a good experience. And, and that's what I kind of aim for. Yeah. I mean, that's all we want to do is have fun, especially if we're taking time to do this and there's so much value in forming, you know, there's bond. I think I was talking to Shiv about this. There's this 
bonding experience that happens when you have somebody on the show, you get through to them, you have like, there's this energy and that energy makes its way to the listener, right? And that's why they tune in again. And so I think that's important is just to relax. You know, the more formal you make a podcast, I think the less likely somebody's going to listen to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and in fact, that's kind of our teaching philosophy too. I mean, osmosis is entire ethos is around kind of making learning less formal, less stuffy. And I guess that might segue into my question for you, which is, you know, because we are a teaching company, we love to kind of fill knowledge gaps. Is there something that you could teach our audience and it could be something technical or something kind of in the way of maybe mentorship or anything at all that, that feels important to you? Well, one ask I have is to please, please, please educate your med students about interventional radiology because it's the coolest specialty, but it's unfortunately not well understood or explained by people, uh, including IRs. I mean, we have a hard time. I go to out to dinner with my parents and we run into one of their friends and they, you try and explain what it is you do to them. And they're just, the only thing they take away is radiology. So they're, oh, he's a radiologist, but they don't understand that we, <laughs> how, what we do is amazing. It's imaging guided therapies, right? And so I started just saying, imaging guided therapies because, and I picked that up from Atul Gupta from Philips, because I think that's the best way to explain what it is we do. You know, yes, we're training in radiology, but we use that skill set to then perform minimally invasive procedures. Now it's an independent residency program and it's super competitive. You know, it's up there with like derm and neurosurgery. And so we want to make sure that our med students know what it is. We want to make sure that our referring docs know what it is. I mean, when I was in the outpatient world, I was going out there and talking to family practice docs that had no idea what IR did because a nobody, probably nobody that they know went into it when they were in medical school and they've just never had exposure to it because it's a relatively new field. So yeah, I think, you know, for example, like, and even the, and the general public doesn't know, right. They don't know that there's other minimally invasive options for fibroids right? You don't have to have a hysterectomy. You can have a uterine fibroid embolization where it's basically taking a little catheter, putting it into the vessel that feeds into that big fibroid, injecting some little embolization beads that shrink it down and all via a tiny little nick in your groin or in your wrist, which is even better. So, I mean, amazing technologies like that, that we, we get to participate in is why it's such a cool field. And so that's my take home for any med students or anybody listening that uh, is not aware of what IR is or does. You hit the nail on the head for me. Like I love examples. And so you just gave me one. Do people, when you explain it that way and say, look, you know, you could a get your whole uterus removed, big deal. Meaning it really is a big deal yeah. or B you can, you know, you can have a nick in your groin, a little tube placed inside of the blood vessel. It goes and finds where it needs to go using radiology to guide it and then we get rid of it. Do people get it? Or do, do people say, well, what the heck is a fibroid? Or, <laughs> like, <laughs> or is it? Yeah. So yeah, what, I mean, what example do you like to use for, for folks usually? Yeah. That, I mean, that's the issue is like women, unless they have fibroids, they tend to not really know what they are, but most women do because their mom had them or their grandma or somebody knows, and they know that they cause excessive bleeding and cramping and pain. And so for women, I can explain that when it comes to other people like men, who may not know what fibroids are, I talk about cancer, right? Like liver cancer. If there's, it's a similar concept. If somebody has a liver tumor, we can go in with a tiny little tube in their groin or in their wrist and get to the vessel that feeds that tumor because the tumors like to recruit blood vessels. And you can inject 
chemotherapy directly into the tumor instead of systemically and and shrink that tumor down and usually people are like what it's like brain wow like they're wow that i didn't know that existed instead of having surgery or systemic chemo and so that's the other example that i tend to give that's awesome i love it i'm glad you use that as the example because i think a lot of people are going to have that brain wow moment <laughs> if if they don't know what ir is that is why i think it's so special so listen, we have a lot of students and a lot of early career health professionals in our audience. They look at you, they look at your life, doing what you love. You know, you still do clinical practice. You are making an important difference in how people communicate. What advice do you have for folks like that that may say, hey, I want I want a career like that? Yeah, <laughs> I would say I was just so hyper-focused on medicine, getting the good grades and getting into, you know, whatever residency. I would say take business classes. I'm so jealous of Shiv who took time and got his MBA. And I wish I had the, like the foresight or had that opportunity at that time, because it's just, I think it's important whether, even if you're not like a physician entrepreneur, just to help understand the business of medicine. That's where physicians are at a severe disadvantage. We come out of medical school and even residency and training, we have zero clue as to what the business of medicine is all about. And that's why our salaries have not gone up. That's why, I mean, we're not fighting for ourselves and we need to have a better understanding of the economics of healthcare so that we can stick up for ourselves, not to scare anybody, but I think that that you will come out a overall better physician and have more sort of advantages and less challenges in your career if you get that education while you're in that learning mode, because once you get out in practice, it's hard. Then you start a family, your bandwidth is limited. It's hard for me to go carve out time to go do an MBA or sit down and read business books. I, I do, but I wish I kind of had that foundation before. I think that's fantastic advice and I couldn't agree more. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Well, listen, thank you for joining our show today. That was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing. And anybody in the audience, if you want to reach out, my email is aaron at backtable.com. And please check us out at backtable.com if you want to learn more about the podcast. And just to underscore that, that's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, right? That's right. A-A, Ron. Awesome. <laughs> I got that reference. Uh, well, listen, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.